in light of eternity if we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith and embrace the journey of discipleship Jesus calls us to. How many of you have ever seen the movie or read the books, The Hunger Games? Anybody seen or read those? Okay. Um, Kids, it's a terrible movie. Do not watch it um, unless your parents say it's okay. But this is a post-apocalyptic series by Suzanne Collins in which children from different districts fight to the death in gladiatorial type games that people watch on their TV for entertainment. Two children are chosen from every district to compete, and they're given the special privilege of representing their district in these games. One boy and one girl are chosen by drawing names out of a bowl. And before drawing the names, the host will announce, may the odds be ever in your favor. But it's ridiculous because for every year a child is eligible to be taken to these games, their name is put in the bowl another time. So by the time the child is old, the odds are certainly not in their favor because their names might be in the bowl 10 or 11 times. The chances of them getting chosen are very high. Furthermore, most of the children selected to go to these terrible games are going to die. So the odds are really not in their favor. And then the whole concept is terrible. Being entertained by people killing one another. Why would that be something fun to watch on TV? Well, oftentimes today, words like, may the odds be ever in your favor, or may fortune smile on you, or when a friend just says, best of luck before you do something, it can sound a little empty and hollow a little pointless, like, okay, that's just something you kind of say because you feel the need to say something, but what does it actually mean? It sounds as if those words just hang in the air a little bit before they fall flat. You've told somebody this, right? Uh, Good luck. But what does that actually mean? Uh, I mean, who is luck and how can it be good and what are you hoping will happen? You see, there are words that can mean something. If there is a God to whom words of hope are addressed, and if that God is strong and compassionate, and if he chooses to hear a plea for help when we intercede for another, then that changes everything. And that's what we're going to find in Jesus' sermon to us. Of all the ways he could begin addressing us, He's going to begin with something that is kind of like good luck, but it's going to be far better than when those words fall flat when we wish them apart from the existence of an eternal and good God. The mission of Jesus, as we learned last week, is to both announce and begin the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's his preaching and eventually his death and resurrection that is his mission. We said the message is the mission. The miracles support the message. This is emphasized in our first two verses that we'll read here in a minute. We're going to see that if crowds have gathered because Jesus is working miracles. I mean, if, if you heard that there was somebody who with a few words and a touch was healing people, you'd want to go see it. I would too. We'd be lining up. And with these crowds all gathered, Jesus uses the opportunity to do the primary mission. That is to preach the message. It is the good news of the kingdom that we're about to hear. I would dare say that these are the greatest words ever spoken in history. And we have the immense privilege of hearing and studying these words from Jesus. They're not empty and hollow. They're far better than may the odds be ever in your favor. They're full and they're precious promises from our Savior. And so with that setup, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Words from our Savior. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, we have been studying you and preparing in some ways for this moment for many weeks now. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and you'd lift our minds above kind of the the day-to-day that we struggle with so that we could think right thoughts about Jesus and we could hear from him. Use this message and, and these words from Scripture to get accomplished what you would want, and that is that you make us disciples of Christ. And send us out from here, Lord, ready to follow you with the hope of heaven. I ask this, Jesus, please, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, Jesus begins this most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, with one word repeated nine times. Kids, what was the word that he said over and over and over at the beginning? Did you hear it? What is it? Well, righteousness, I think, might be the one that Mr. Jeff had you get, but he says one word over and over at the beginning. He says the word blessed. Blessed. Did you hear that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if you're like me, I heard bless a lot growing up, but I typically heard it when somebody sneezed. You know, if somebody sneezed, you had to as quickly as you could say, God bless you. And, and that was, um, if you say it really fast as a Southerner, it sounds like one word, God bless you. You know, it just, you know, maybe G-A-B-L-E-S-U. But God bless you is what I was taught to say after somebody sneezed. It actually has an amazing meaning, this word, blessed. It's a word that translates the Greek word makarioi. And that can mean a number of things depending on the context. When it's used of human beings being blessed by God, it means privileged recipient of divine favor. Now, some of you may know the Bible is one whole book, but there are two testaments, an Old and a New Testament. And Behind the New Testament, we're reading in English, it was translated from Greek. That was the original language of the New Testament. The Old Testament, the original language, was not Greek, but was Hebrew. And this dates back to uh, a thousand years or so before Christ, where they, they have assembled much of what we know as the Old Testament. They, there are uh, extant copies going back years and years and years of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And so what we can do, and this is a a fascinating thing, in the year 200 BC, a group of Hebrew and Greek scholars got together and they made a translation of the Old Testament into Greek because so many Hebrew children were being born who couldn't read in ancient Hebrew, but they could read and speak Greek. And so we can look and see what Hebrew word was used in the place of makarioi. In other words, what Hebrew word did they translate as makarioi? And it's fascinating. If we go to, for instance, Psalm 1, we see where a Hebrew word is in the Septuagint translated in makario. This is what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of Of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So, 
This is a little bit, make your head spin, but we have three languages. We read in English. In the New Testament, it was translated from Greek. In the Old Testament, it came from Hebrew. But in the year 200, they translated that Hebrew into Greek. And what we're doing is we're looking at the same word for blessed in two different languages. Blessed is makarioi in Greek. And in Hebrew, it was the word Assure, which means happiness or blessedness. For instance, when the queen of Sheba comes and sees the prosperity of Israel under the wise king Solomon, she proclaims, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And the word there is assure And then in the Greek, makarioi, happy. My point is, when we look at these words in the original languages, we see that blessed means to be so favored by God that we experience true happiness. And you'll hear those today who say, oh, you can't translate blessed, happy. It just totally misses the point of the word. And I understand what they mean, and that is that we often will use the word happy today in, in kind of a, a, a flippant way. Well, I'm happy today, I'm not tomorrow, or right now I feel happy, things like that. But what we miss, I think, when we so separate the idea of blessed and happy is that Jesus comes to talk about the way to be truly happy. He comes with some really good news. And we see this even in the passage. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5 verse 12. Jesus says, he gives these two wonderful commands. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now, you can't be rejoicing and being glad without being happy. You, you could do a lot of things, but if you are actually taking Jesus' command seriously to rejoice and to be glad, you're going to have to be happy. So you put it all together, and this is a sermon that Jesus came to give us the way to be truly and forever happy. That's what this is about. He's come to give us true and eternal happiness. Pause here for just a minute and think about how good this news is. God knows you. He knows me. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He made us. He sustains us. He's keeping this galaxy spinning and gravity going down and this air breathable and our atoms in such an array that we don't spin out of existence. God knows us so well. He knows what we need. And... He sent his son, Jesus, to announce this good news to a world. And the first words that Jesus speaks at the beginning of his biggest sermon is to announce happiness, eternal and true happiness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants to offer you true happiness both now and forever? It'll change the way you approach the rest of this gospel. Too many Christians, I think, have resigned themselves to living something like the Jedi in Star Wars where, you know, they're good, but they're not necessarily happy. Happiness, that might be the kind of thing reserved for heaven, but in this earth, I just have a duty to do, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do it no matter how I feel, and and I'm not supposed to feel happy because that's selfish. Somewhere along the lines... We've come to associate happiness with somebody else's existence, but certainly not the Christian. And it makes the Christian very dour and unpleasant to be around. Don't settle for that. Jesus commands you, rejoice and be glad. That's just as much of a command as not to lie or not to murder or not to steal. He says, rejoice and be glad, and he's come to announce this kind of true happiness. I was greatly helped in this by a book from Randy Alcorn simply called Happiness, and I'd hold it out to any Christian who wants an excellent read for 2022, the book Happiness by Randy Alcorn. But this command of Jesus to rejoice and be glad, this announcement that 
Here is how you can be blessed or truly happy. This is what's going to carry the rest of this sermon. Not only does he announce happiness, but he gives us glimpses of what happiness will look like in the future. That's what the structure of the Beatitudes is all about. You see, the Latin behind the word makarioi and the Hebrew word assure is beatus. And that's why these are sometimes called the beatitudes. It just is the same word and it means sayings of blessing or blessed sayings. These beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those mourn and on and on. They have a structure to them. And the structure goes something like this. They all start with the word blessed. And then they present this present condition of the heart. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the present condition. And then they present this future condition of what it looks like to be eternally happy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look with me at these future conditions of what it looks like to be eternally happy. And what you see here is Jesus gives you a glimpse of heaven. Jesus gives you a glimpse of eternal life with God. It's something that Christians begin to just taste here on earth. But it won't come to fullness. It won't come to all that God means for it to be until you die or Jesus Christ returns. Here are these precious glimpses that he gives us. The first one in verse 3 says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes begin, and they actually will end the same way. Look at verse uh, 10. It says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So verse 3 and verse 10, like bookends on either side, say that the future state of those so blessed will be to possess the kingdom of heaven. This means when you are a Christian, you have the hope of being a full citizen in Jesus' eternal kingdom. At the end of our passage, uh, next week, Jesus will say to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's to say that heaven is primarily the home of God. But in this passage, we find that if we are so blessed by God, we have a passport to live where God lives. For his home to be our home, his country to be our country. You know, just pause for a minute and think about that. Jesus is announcing a way for your home to be with God forever. If you've grown up in church, you might have heard that a few times, but let the beauty of that sink in. The first words Jesus tells a crowd of people thinking that they just came to be healed of a disease is, I'm going to tell you how you can be happy with God forever. That's some good news. And then he goes on and says in verse 4, for they will be comforted. Heaven, we know in Revelation 21 will be a place of no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. It's all going to vanish and be part of a distant and ancient past. It's when God will fully comfort his children. The comfort that begins today when we know we're forgiven will come to fruition where the, the things like coronavirus will be done. There will be no more sorrow because we will be comforted. And then in verse 5, it says, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is probably where your idea of heaven might be challenged a little bit, because I know for a time when I pictured heaven, I pictured sitting on a cloud, you know, maybe um, hearing church music a lot of time. Maybe we would all be in a, a church service, but it was, it was way up there in the clouds. That's what I pictured heaven. And Jesus says, but they will inherit the earth. You see, when Jesus returns, he brings the home of God, heaven, and our home, earth, together. 
And that's why in Revelation 21.1 and elsewhere, when it speaks of our eternal home, it calls it a new heaven and a new earth. You can think of it as the heaven earth, the combination of God's home and our home. If you're a Christian, you will live forever with God on a renewed, combined heaven earth. And thus, as God's child, he bestows on you the whole earth, way bigger than the initial promise to the tribes of Israel. It's gotten so big, you shall inherit the earth. And then look at verse 6. It says, for they shall be satisfied. In heaven, you're going to live without sin. Jesus is going to later explain it this way. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather, they, excuse me, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Matthew chapter 13 verses 41 and 42. Jesus tells us that in heaven, citizens will be truly happy because it will be a society that works. No more sin. No more corrupt politicians. No more broken systems. No more selfishness and greed and the things that make society just not quite work the way things should. They shall be satisfied. I picture, just as a comical thing, going to the heavenly version of the DMV and it being a pleasant experience because things just work. I don't know. It almost blows your mind, right? They shall be satisfied. And then verse 7, for they shall receive mercy. Every person will stand before the Son of God and face judgment. Those who have trusted him alone for salvation and who experience his blessing today, they will be shown mercy from the Son and welcomed into the eternal kingdom. That is when the mercy of God comes to its fullest sense. When the kingdom is revealed and we receive the mercy to say, you know what? You deserve to be punished, but I took your place. Come on in. Verse 8 says, For they shall see God. This is sometimes called by old preachers the beatific vision. And kids, all it means is we will see God. I mean, right now, our sense of seeing God is by eyes of faith. No one has actually seen God, and that's typically a way to find somebody who's a false teacher if they start telling you that they have seen God face to face. It's not true. But one day, one day it will be. One day, just as you can see me right now, we will see God I don't know what I'm going to do. I will probably fall on my face. I will probably, you know, be so low and wait for him to tell me it's okay to look at him. I will probably laugh and smile and cry at the same time. Snot's coming out of my nose the whole bit. But we will see God and be with him just like we're in the same room right now. Imagine that in the presence of the God who loves you, who died for you. And verse 9 says, they shall be called sons of God, children of God. It's a reminder of the Christian's adoption in Jesus. When you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, he doesn't just forgive you. Praise God, he does. But he adopts you. He treats you like his son, like his daughter. And therefore, you have all the inheritance rights of a son or daughter of the king. That means you get to look forward to being treated as a son or as a daughter forever. The, the father lavishing his love on you for all eternity, the same way a dad would love his kids. And it finishes in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, ending where we began, a citizen of heaven the other country is where our hope lies. Jesus will say, if you want to be truly happy, you need to rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. You see, Jesus wants to bless us with an eternal perspective. That's where we find true happiness. When we take our happiness and our hope and our joys away from things that are all tied to circumstances here and now, 
and they're placed in a place with our Father where nothing can touch them until the Father gives them to us forever. Paul learned this spiritual discipline of living with an eternal perspective, and he taught it when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul maintained an eternal perspective, and whether he was shipwrecked or being beaten or being chased away, he could live happy. So here's the bottom line. True happiness is found in knowing the hope of living forever with God in heaven. That's it. True happiness is found in knowing the hope of living forever with God in heaven. Now, I found that we tend to miss this joy for a few different reasons this morning. Some people miss it because they, they don't take the warnings of Jesus seriously. You know, um, I've met so many who will say something like this, well, God is so good, certainly he'll welcome us into heaven. Certainly he wouldn't punish people forever in, in that other place. You know, that, that just can't be. I, and the God I know wouldn't do that to anybody. And, and you might ask somebody who says that, well, what are you basing that hope on? And that's where you'll probably get somebody being a little squeamish because what are, what are you basing that on? Well, it's kind of just made up in somebody's head. I mean, it sounds good, but it's as flimsy and unsturdy as trying to stand on a piece of paper. The, the God of the Bible tells us what it looks like to be right with him. And it's not that just being born and living a little bit of a good life or the, your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, that that will make you right with him. Listen to these words from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The default destination there of human beings is not heaven, but it's represented by the word perish. You see, no matter how much well-wishing we do, love doesn't just win. There's no, if I'm good enough, I'll make it into heaven. There's no backwards uh, small door on the side that he says, okay, yeah, you can slip in here. I'll, I'll sweep your sins under the rug. It's no big deal. If you've been clinging to some kind of deal like that you made with God, in all love, I would say to you this morning, don't be stupid. God tells you what it takes to be right with him. He loves you so much he's made it clear. He says, your default destination is hell because you're a sinner, but I love you so much I'll offer you heaven if you'll receive me on my terms. And those terms are coming to faith in Jesus alone for forgiveness. So I find some people miss the hope of heaven because they have this kind of deal they've made with God. But Perhaps the more prevalent reason that people fail to look forward to heaven is because they've, in their minds, decided that imagining heaven is something a Christian's just not supposed to do. Have you ever heard this taught? A Christian will say something like, we're not supposed to imagine heaven. After all, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And they'll say, see, we're not supposed to imagine heaven because you can't imagine heaven. And they kind of go through their Christian life with just this vague hope that somehow when Jesus returns, things will be better. But let's look at that quote for a minute. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and it's quoting Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. Here's the whole context. None of the rulers of this age understood this Christian wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, that is, excuse me, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, that is the things that no one understood beforehand, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
So in the context, it's saying that apart from divine intervention and enabling, the world is blind to heavenly realities. And that's why the Jews crucified the Messiah. They couldn't see him for who he was. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, gives us new eyes, we can see heavenly realities. In fact, we're supposed to see heavenly realities. We're supposed to look forward to heaven. So according to the Bible, when you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, you're supposed to imagine heaven the way the Bible presents it. That's supposed to give you hope to keep going. That's supposed to carry you when bad things happen. That's supposed to help you know that as bad as it gets today, it won't always be this way. If imagining heaven were somehow wrong, then please don't read the book of Revelation. You'd be doing something wrong every time you read it. And you certainly shouldn't listen to Jesus who's going to describe heaven a lot. Also, you'd have to not read big portions of the prophets like the second half of Isaiah. No, it is good to imagine heaven. As long as you don't let your imagination run wild. And that would be my final caution with heaven. Uh, I listened to an interview one time and it made me laugh. The interviewers were going around the streets of Seattle asking people, what do you think heaven will be like? And this one woman sitting there with a very straight face when she said, or when they, she was asked, well, what do you think heaven will be like? She said, cheese. And the interviewer said, excuse me, can you explain? Well, she said, I think in heaven I'll be able to eat as much cheese as I would like and not gain a pound. So that's my heaven. I'll just eat cheese all day long. And, and while that's kind of funny, that's, uh, you know, just made up out of that woman's own head. And we can do this, right? We, we can sometimes say something like, well, I think my heaven will be this, or I think my heaven will be that. Don't settle for that. And be careful of people who claim to have had visions of heaven and written them down and made bestseller books. I would tell you, you've got a far better book to tell you what heaven is like than, say, a little boy who claims to have seen it in a vision. Um, your, your best way to imagine heaven is to let God's inspired word give you the glimpses you're supposed to have. This book is so good at stirring up our heart and mind and giving us a heaven to look forward to. A new heaven earth, living in a society without sin, free from pain or sorrow, your forever home, living, remembering the mercy of God shown you in Jesus, seeing God face to face, living as a son or daughter of God with all its privileges. It's a heaven to look forward to. Indeed, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's some good news that Jesus announces. And he says that this happiness that is one day in heaven, it's also a happiness for your journey today. It's happiness for your journey today. You see, every one of these beatitudes contains a present condition that is rightly called a blessing. We said that each of these has one part, blessed are, and then a present condition, say like the poor in spirit, and then a future condition, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to look briefly at well, what are the present conditions of the heart that characterize the blessed. Now, I was helped by R.C. Sproul in this, and that you shouldn't think of these like products on a shelf at a store. Because sometimes that would be nice, right? Like telling Jesus, well, I'll have some of the mercy, but, but, but keep the poor in spirit to yourself, please. I don't really want that blessing. Or I'll have some of the purity in heart, but I don't really want the mourning. That, that, you can give that to some other Christian. But that's not how it works. These aren't items to select a la carte at a store. These are more like road markers or landmarks on the journey called discipleship, on our journey to heaven. So let's look at each of these briefly to see what it means to be blessed today, what the good news Jesus has for us. 
says first in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, before we get to the in spirit part, just pause at the poor. Because poverty is something that some of you in this room have never known. Some of you have been, uh, always had enough money to where you can meet your basic needs. And so the idea of poverty is just kind of foreign. But when you're poor, you do not have enough money to meet your basic needs. You are lacking. You are not okay. Jesus adds the word in spirit or poor in spirit to help us see that he's talking about spiritual poverty. You see, one of the first landmarks on a person's heaven journey is when the Holy Spirit wakes someone up to see that they're not okay. That maybe this life that they thought they had all things figured out, it's, it's just not so. It's almost like Neo waking up in the matrix and saying something is off. The Holy Spirit stirs hearts and minds to see that spiritually we're bankrupt. Things are not the way they're meant to be. And Jesus says when that begins to happen, that's a blessing. You're starting to wake up. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then blessed are those who mourn. When do you mourn? You mourn right when somebody dies. We had a funeral here yesterday and it was a difficult reminder for many that we will each die. A sweet lady passed away at only 47 years old. Those of you who've been to funerals, you know this. Death is a reality. And I think Jesus wants us to consider not just physical death, but again, the kind of spiritual death, just like when he said they're poor in spirit. I think he, he means to also point us to those who mourn spiritually. You see, not only is there something wrong with us, but it's so wrong, we don't have the power to fix it on our own. The Bible says you're not just spiritually sick, you're spiritually dead. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And to come to understand this about yourself is a blessing. To have your eyes open and see, you know what? I'm not okay. I can't fix it. I can't make this right. I desperately need help. I have a problem. It's time to mourn and go to God. Blessed are those who mourn. They're on the right path. And then verse 5 says, blessed are the meek. Meek is not weak. Meek is humble. You see, as you come to grips with the bad news of the Bible and you respond God's way, that means you're going to respond humbly and not with pride and arrogance. The arrogance would say, how dare you tell me there's something wrong with my life? How dare you tell me, excuse me, I don't have the power to fix it. I have been able to, you know, control so many things. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit, when he gets in, shows us that you're a sinner, that we each deserve to be punished in hell, and he gives us the humility to receive this news. The humble don't get angry over being called a sinner. They don't act as if it is wrong of God to make Jesus the only way to be saved. The meek, the humble, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior with joy. Those of you who are Christians, don't you remember when this happened? The Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart and one day the idea that Jesus would die on a cross for you just became the best news ever. I mean, it's just, something just changed, right? It's all of a sudden looking and, and thinking about Jesus on the cross, you just went, wow, God loves me that much. Of course I'm going to trust him. Of course I'm going to follow him. Of course I'm going to give him his life. You were at that moment blessed with being meek blessed with the humility to receive this as good news. That's when you know you're on the heaven journey. And then it says in verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you become a Christian and you're forgiven of your sins, the Holy Spirit comes to reside inside of you and it begins a work to change you from the inside out. It's a work that will take place the rest of your life called sanctification. And 
He literally changes your heart so that you want things you didn't want before. Talk to any Christian here who's been walking with the Lord for a while, and there are some funny stories to hear about how all of a sudden I had joy in going to church. Your friends will ask you, why do you go to church so much? Why, why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? I mean, these things seem so boring. And you, you go, I, boring? It's wonderful to praise my God. It's so much fun to help other Christians. It's, it's good. It's joyous to do the things Jesus tells me to do. They'll think you've gone nuts. But your heart has been changed. You want different things as you feel the Holy Spirit changing you to where you want what pleases God, you know you're on the right path. You've been blessed to hunger and thirst for righteousness. How about blessed are the merciful? Praise God, when you become a Christian, you're not saved to live the Christian life alone. You're saved to live it in community with other believers. That's why we have this thing called church. You're saved to do the Christian life with other people. Now, we are not perfect. And if any Christian ever claims it, he has proved that he is not perfect because he just lied to you. We are all still sinners in the process of being redeemed and being sanctified. We are not what we will be when Jesus returns. And that means, as those who are in process, we're going to sin against each other. And it is sad that Christians do hurt each other, but it is true. And that's when you have an opportunity by the power of the Spirit to show one another mercy. Blessed are the merciful means blessed are those who have so believed Jesus that they have committed themselves to a local church and decided to stick it out even when somebody sins against them so that they have this opportunity to say, you know what? What you did to me was wrong, but I'm going to love you anyway. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to use this as an opportunity to spread gossip. I'm going to show you some of the mercy that our good Savior has shown me. The next time somebody at church hurts you, remember this, blessed are the merciful. Here is your chance to probably be more like Jesus than you've had in a long time because Jesus has shown each of us such mercy. You will never have an opportunity to show more mercy than you've received. When you have that chance, you're on the right path. Show your brother or sister mercy. Don't punish them. And then blessed are the pure in heart. When a metal is purified, it's melted so where the denser pure metal drops and the impurities rise to the top so they can be removed. It takes a lot of heat and, and it is a, a process for sure. And it's a great picture of the inside work the Holy Spirit continues to do where he scrapes away the impurities, those idols that we tend to give some worship to other than our Savior. Now, this process hurts because bringing it to the surface, it will seem so, so bad. I mean, I didn't even know that I worshiped that idol. I didn't know that I needed the um, accolades at work to make me feel good, or I didn't know that I was so demanding of my spouse because I'd made an idol out of him, or I didn't know that I secretly worship money. When, when these things come to the surface, it's painful and it hurts, and then the Holy Spirit's going to remove them as he makes you more and more a heart that is pure to worship God. When that happens, when the Holy Spirit does that work to expose your idols and to take them from you, know that you're on the right path. You're on the way to heaven. And verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, a, a peacemaker, we could think of like an ambassador, is somebody who intervenes between two parties at war. Two countries might be at war, and a peacemaker is sent in to broker a peace deal. And, and there is something incredibly noble about Christians just seeking generally to live at peace with all people. But I think Jesus here is talking specifically about a war that has been going on all the way since Genesis 3. You see, since that time, mankind has been at war against the creator God. And we are called as Christians to go between a holy God and a sinful humanity and say, hey, there's a way 
to be pardoned. And the way is by trusting Jesus. Every single one of us is called to play the role of peacemaker when we share the gospel, the good news that there is forgiveness in Jesus' name. When you play that role of a peacemaker, you're on the right path toward heaven. And then it ends. Those who are persecuted for righteousness. Jesus gives a final beatitude, a final present condition of the heart that is an initial blessing telling us we're on the right path of heaven. Now, this makes sense in light of the previous one of peacemaking because if you so embrace that nudge of the Holy Spirit to tell someone about Jesus, one of two things is going to happen, I promise. Some people are going to receive it as a kindness, as some good news. Wow, wow, I, I know that you mean this is a good thing for me. But some people are not going to take it as good news. They're going to get offended. They're going to get upset. And they're going to want to shoot the messenger. Uh, This is what happens, right? Persecution follows peacemaking because an on-fire Christian who delivers the news that you're a sinner and need Christ Jesus alone, some people won't receive that message. Now, he adds persecuted for righteousness to remind Christians, if you're persecuted for being a jerk, that doesn't mean you're being persecuted. I'm talking about being persecuted for speaking a word kindly in Jesus' name. Christian, I'm telling you, more and more, if you seek to actually open your mouth and speak the gospel, you're going to be labeled narrow-minded, bigoted, a Bible thumper, a nuisance. You're going to be labeled as opposing progress, hateful, racist, homophobic, despicable, and even dangerous. And that's why Jesus gives you this word to say, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. These milestones are there to remind us that when we're going through a painful experience like being poor in spirit or mourning or being meek or hungering and thirsting for righteousness or having to show somebody mercy because they've sinned against us or having our idols exposed so our hearts can be pure of trying to share the gospel with somebody again and again even though they didn't necessarily seem open to it the last time of being persecuted These are there to say, hey, 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 but remember, you're on the right path. You're being blessed, and you have heaven to look forward to. All of these are laid out because they will not feel like a blessing the first time we go through them. And we're to look up to our Heavenly Father and say, I trust you anyway. I'm going to share. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. One time I was going to visit a young lady who'd come to our church and two people came with me. It was a husband and wife and they had asked, you know, can you teach us how to share the gospel? And I had said, you know, absolutely, I'd be glad to teach you. What you need to know is sharing the gospel is something that is best learned just by doing it. You know, there's, there's um, a few things for sure I can teach you, but you've probably already learned them when you were a little kid in Sunday school. Uh, you, you, it's, it's not that you have to have a master's of divinity to be able to explain to somebody that they're a sinner and that Jesus can be their savior. But they agreed to go and, and I asked the, the lady who came with me if we had an opportunity, if she would be willing to share the gospel. And she said, well, I don't know how to share it yet. And I said, well, you've got a card that walks through a basic gospel presentation. You can just read from that card. And she said, okay. And we showed up to this person's house and they weren't home, but their roommate was. They were in college and Uh, I had, uh, you know, just asked the roommate a little bit and said, you know, hey, we're from the church, so-and-so visited our church, and we had come to try to be helpful and and explain a little bit of the beliefs of Christianity, and the girl lit up. She said, you know, my roommate and I were just talking about this, how we don't really understand Christianity, and we wish somebody would just come and explain it to us. And she said, would you mind coming in, and we can just talk for a little bit? Well, I didn't need, you know... Too, too many um, nudges from the Spirit at that point. It was pretty clear that God had provided this opportunity. So we went in and had a very pleasant conversation. And I just, at some point after listening, you know, said, well, would you like to hear what the Bible says about how you can be right with God forever? And she said, absolutely. And so the girl who had come with me started reading straight from a card. I mean, just, just one line after another. 
And afterwards, after we'd presented several scriptures, I asked this young lady who we weren't even supposed to visit what she would like to do. And she said, I would like to become a Christian. And so right there on the young lady's couch, we, we led her to Christ and got to see that miracle happen. And, and the point of this story is, you know, this was a girl uh, on the one hand who she knew something was not right. She was experiencing poverty of spirit. She knew that she needed something to fix her life and the other things she'd looked to weren't right. She was seeking what is Christianity. And on the other hand, I had a Christian woman with me who knew she should be a peacemaker but just wasn't sure how. It was so mysterious. And, and yet, here the Holy Spirit used her and all she did was read off of a card. She just happened to be obedient and to go and read some scripture off of a card. Christian, Jesus begins this great sermon telling us how we can be truly happy forever in the sense of heaven, but also right now. Blessings today. We're going to shift toward a time of specifically remembering Jesus and his death for us on the cross, but I'm going to invite us to enter a time of prayer. And, and there may be somebody here and hearing this message who says, you know, um, I'm not for sure that I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so hear me very clearly. Coming to God on his terms mean you acknowledge to him that you have sinned against him and that you cannot fix that sin problem on your own, that the only solution for you is to trust that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. And then, just like when Peter and Andrew and James and John committed to follow him, you're going to make a commitment to Jesus to follow him every day of your life. Admit, believe, and commit. That's what it looks like to become a Christian. As we prepare to take this Lord's Supper, let me just remind you of what this is and, and what it's about. First, this is a chance to remember Jesus. The bread, the, the wine, this is pictures, symbols of our Lord Jesus. The bread symbolizes his body broken for us. That's because when Jesus went to the cross, it, this was such a painful journey. If you remember, he was beaten. He was whipped. When he got on the road to the cross, his body was so drained of blood and strength that somebody else had to be conscripted to help him carry that heavy cross. And then he was nailed to the cross. So his body broken for us is symbolized by the bread. And then crucifixion, they put nails in the hands and nails through both of the feet. And the person who was being crucified would slowly bleed and struggle to breathe. And that blood coming out of Jesus, that's what we remember when we take and drink. I say this because there are some of you here who have not yet decided to become a Christian. I would love for you to pray and give your life to Jesus this morning, but this is a celebration for Christians. So for you, if you're not a Christian, watch what we do, but don't take because it won't bless you yet. This is for Christians. Now, Jesus tells us that when we have given our lives to him, we should follow that with baptism as a symbol to show the world that we have died to our old way of life and we've risen to live as followers of Jesus. And so if you have not yet obeyed that command to be baptized as a believer, then also I would invite you to watch the Lord's Supper, but, but just let it pass this morning. As a Christian, too, we're also to prepare ourselves. Some of you, maybe you have just hit a point in your life where you've been running from the Lord for a while. You've been living in some kind of sin you've not yet confessed and repented of. As we pray, use this as a time to repent. But if you've been living and uh, you'll know it in your heart, the kind of rebellion that you know you're not in the right place to take the Lord's Supper, I'd encourage you to just to let it pass. But Christian, let's, 
as we go to the Lord in prayer, prepare our hearts to take this meal and celebrate how much our Savior loves us. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, you gave us your word this morning to listen and to receive and to understand how much you love us. You gave us the promise of heaven, the the hope to have to sustain us today. I pray, dear Jesus, that for those who are here who are Christians, you would just cement that hope in our hearts, that we would look forward to a new heaven earth with you. And Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not yet a Christian, that they would use this time to confess their sins and to give their lives to you forever. That they would place their faith in you, Jesus. I pray for the children here that you'd help them to understand how much you love them. I pray for the families here that you'd bless us with this renewed sense of being followers of Christ. Jesus, we need you in every possible way. We thank you for the symbol to remember how much you love us. Lord, use this time to draw us together, uh, not only individually, but as a church family. I said, Jesus, please, in your name, amen. One way to prepare for the Lord's Supper is to confess your sins. Um, If you are a Christian here and you're preparing to take it, use this time to confess your sins. But I would especially say uh, married couples, go ahead and get together because I'm going to try to lead you in in a time of confession together. So if you're married and your spouse is in this place, go ahead and physically get with your spouse and we're going to have this time. Husbands, would you hold your wife's hand and say something like this. If I have not loved you as Christ loves the church and gave his life for her, would you please forgive me? Wives, would you please hold your husband's hand look him in the eye and say if I have not loved you and submitted to your leadership as the church submits to Christ would you please forgive me invite the elders of the church to come forward please and Andrew brother will you come up here too I hope your hearts are prepared to enjoy this meal together uh, Pastor Jeff would you say a prayer for us as we prepare to take us once again, Lord.